Good morning, CLC family. Uh, it's Pastor Ben here again with another message from the book of Nehemiah. And today we are exploring chapter five. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard the saying, house that is divided will crumble. And last week, as we spent looking at the matters of oppositions from the outsiders, the taunting of the unbelievers, and saw that the hidden reasons behind Sam Ballot and Tobias' indignant anger. Now, today, chapter 5 is also about oppositions. But what's the difference is that today's passage, these oppositions comes from within. You know what? If opposition come from outside, from outsiders, at least the people can unite together to fight off these oppositions, as we saw last week. But just like the saying goes, when a house that is divided, where there's no unity among its people, when people are bickering amongst themselves, it cannot stand. And you know, one of Satan's powerful weapon is to divide and conquer. If Satan can quickly break rank, turn its people on themselves to fight each other, then he knows he has the victory at hand. And that's why Luke warns us in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28 to 32. This is what Luke says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among our own selves, men will ride, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that the night and the day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of the, each one of with tears, and now I command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You know, so when the enemy fails in his attack from the outside, he begins to attack from within. And one of his favorite bullet that he likes to use is selfishness. You see, if he can't get God's people to think about themselves only and what they want and then he will win the victory before we even realize that satan is at work now these next words uh, which i'm about to say um I, I don't know how to sugarcoat it so i'm just going to say it okay in in, in plain and in simple so here it goes so brace yourself okay guys and here it goes okay we are all selfish at times. What? Me? And there are various degrees of selfishness. But the general traits are the same. Putting ourselves first. Only caring about our needs. And unable to see others' perspective. And being uncaring for others. Now, isn't it true that we all have been guilty of one or all of these traits. But what really sets the self-centered people apart is that they behave like this all the time. Now, if you are shocked or if you are in disbelief that 
you don't think humanity is selfish, now try going shopping early in the morning on a Black Friday, or try yelling fire in a crowded room, or drive anywhere on our roads because you'll see the horrific display of selfishness as we see drivers aggressively competing to get ahead of one another. You see, selfish really means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so I can be happy and taking, taking the advantage of them so I can have my own ways. And that's kind of the premise of what chapter 5 was all about. You see, chapter 5 is similar to chapter 4 in that we're looking at oppositions, but unfortunately, the source of the opposition is now from, from God's people in dealing with selfishness. So let's read. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren, for there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we may buy grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as flesh as our brethren's, our children as our children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have, their, have our, our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcries and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles, rulers, said to them, Each of you exacting the usury from his brothers. So I called a great assembly against them. Then I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren were sold into the to the nations now indeed it, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us then they were silenced and focused nothing to say then i say what you're doing is not good should you not walk in the fear of god because of the reproach of the nations of our enemies i also with my brethren and my servant am lending them money and grain please let us stop this usury restore now to them even this day their land, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also hundredth of money and the grain, and the new wine, the new oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it. We will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests, required an oath from them, and they would do according to the promises. Then they shook out and folded the garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house, from his property, what does not perform this promise. Even thus may he have shaken out to be emptied. And all the assembly of, uh, uh, then all the assembly said, Amen. Praise to the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. Now, you know, if, if you had a chance to read chapter five, I, I couldn't help notice uh, how much materialism is devoted to a certain part of this book. You know, while others that might appear to be more significant and important are just kind of glossed over rather quickly. I mean, I mean, the story of how Nehemiah receives the news of the crumble, crumbled wall only gets like few verses. Or, or his decision with the king to return to Jerusalem is covered less than half a chapter. Or what about this one? 
the survey of the wall and the planning received one chapter. And yet, when it came to discuss the project, an entire chapter three was taken to a list for everyone's name. And now, three chapters are going to be devoted to the matter of oppositions and the way that Nehemiah handles it. So, you know what? It shouldn't surprise us that in a book on leadership and working with people, the subject of money will surely come up. I mean, if we didn't have money, technically, we wouldn't even have a building for God's people to come together or to buy food for ministries like Holy Chow. Now, you know, during shelter in place, I've been hearing Holy Chow, Holy Chow, Holy Chow, and that I'm hearing that a lot of you guys are, are missing this, this great festivity called the Holy Chow. But reality that most projects that are undertaken for God's ministry involves money in some ways. And this could be an area in life which God's people could either shine or fail. And so let's dive into today's passage and figure out what the problem was. You see, the problem was, or the problem was centered on the complaints of the poorer Jews against the wealthy Jews who were ignoring their desperate needs, or they were actually making their needs worse through exploiting them. And the things were made worse because there was a famine in the land, and those who owned property were forced to mortgage their fields, vineyards, and houses in order to survive, to get food. You know, others had to borrow money in order to pay the king's tax on their property. And even some were forced, check this out, to sell their children into slavery to their fellow Jews in order to pay their taxes. You see, many of the Israelites who returned back to Jerusalem from captivity were very wealthy. And these few wealthy Jews were upsetting the Nehemiahs because, to some degree, the Israelites didn't learn the lesson God wanted them to learn during their entire 70 years of captivity. So, so as the result of all this, we have in verse 1, now there was an outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So when Nehemiah hears of it, he, he gets angry. He gets, teacher Lin, teacher Lin, these injustices are making me so, so angry, cries out Nehemiah. Hey, take a look in verse 6. And he became very angry when he heard their outcry and these words. You know, um, I find his anger kind of therapeutic because there seems to be these two extremes in the Christian circle that all anger is wrong. Sometimes Christians who think like this, like they deny their anger, and but it's it's so evident to to everybody else, or or others buy into it that anger isn't wrong or right. It just is. And that we should just express it and own up to it. You know, um, the Bible teaches us that most anger is very sinful. But some angers are righteous, if you read in Ephesians chapter 4. I mean, 
even Jesus, our great leader, got angry at the Pharisees in Mark chapter 5. You see, if our anger is directed against a sinful treatment of others, and if we allow it for us to move toward constructive means or to try to resolve the problem, then it may be righteous anger. But is it right to get angry about sinful practices such as child abuse, pornography, abortion, racism, or mistreatment of women and so on? But, but it would be sinful to respond with violence toward those who perpetrate such an act. And we need to check ourselves to make sure that we direct our righteous anger righteously. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Let's find out. Before Nehemiah lashes out to the guilty ones for exploiting the poor, do you know what he does? Look at verse 7. He consults himself. He thinks to himself after serious thoughts. You know, I love the fact that he just didn't go off in rage to blast those who were wrongdoings. Aha, I got you. But then what does he do? He, he stops. He, he kind of cools off and thinks and he prays things through. And then he takes actions. You know, Proverbs 16.32 says that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit and he who captures the city. You see, what this proverb is saying that Leaders need to exercise self-control when they become angry. Or here's another attribute of Nehemiah's leadership that I find really, really resourceful. Did you know that he knew when, how, and what the people were going through? You know, no test of godly leadership is more revealing than during the test of oppositions, I think. Some leaders can go into pieces under such a pressures or grow weary, but some leaders, they help others to rebuild their spiritual walls around their lives so that they could defend and protect themselves from the enemy. You see, Nehemiah's leadership, a leader cannot deal with problems that he is not aware of. And Nehemiah knew exactly what the problem was. And where the people were and responded. How? Following the principles of biblical confrontations. Check this out. First, he privately confronts those guilty of mistreating the poor. Look look in verse 7. After serious a thought, he rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brothers. So he called a great assembly against him. You know, what's interesting is that Nehemiah did not have our Lord's teaching on Matthew chapter 18. You you know what that teaching is? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in a private manner. Or whether that he took some other leaders or he did this in private, but he seemed to follow this pattern of a private confrontation before any public confrontation. Then what does he do? He calls a great assembly and spells out their problems. 
and he rebukes the leaders in verse 8. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who are sold to the nation. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brothers or shall they be sold to us that they be silenced and found nothing to say? And, and, and by pointing out how and he and others have redeemed the Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. And now it was the Jews themselves who are selling their own brothers and sisters into slavery. Now, I, I want to ask the question, why? Why would this layman, he wasn't even a prophet, he wasn't even a priest, he wasn't even a pastor. Why would he go through all these troubles? Now, you know what, Nehemiah could have just told the people, hey, I'm busy restoring this wall right now, so come back in 52 days and I'll listen to you and I'll try to help resolve this matter. Or he could have just said, you know what, forget it. And just ignore their cries. But he didn't. Do you know why? And the answer lies in verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations of our enemies? You know, this word fear appears twice in this chapter. Once here in verse 9 and verse 15. You see, Nehemiah was a God-fearing man, this chapter explains. And what a God-fearing man does, and he tries to explain this. Now, the word fear, it's a Hebrew word for Yahweh. It doesn't mean afraid or fear, but it also means to stand in awe or reverence or in honor, or could there be more? Now, for those of you guys who love Korean dramas, and I hear, you know, whenever, like, I, I'm with you guys, I'm like, hey, can you check out this Korean drama that I saw, and things like that. Now, for those of you guys who are Korean drama avid lovers, there's a Korean word that I want to teach you this morning. That's why, you see my background? It's, that's why I changed my background. And so this morning, I want to teach you a word called nunchi, okay? N-O-O-N-C-H-I, nunchi. Now, Pastor uh, Calvin, do you want to first take a crack at what this word means? You see, this word nunchi can be translated into being aware or awareness or be able to read the room. Now, but to appreciate a, a deeper meaning of this word, you know, you, you just have to be Korean. You know, um, there's a Korean garment company, Eland, that I came to admire. Now, the company was founded on a biblical principle, and they tie 10% of their total earnings, not just profits, okay, just all total earning, and they give it to the missions. And, and a story in a newspaper one time that caught my attention and I want to share uh, this with you. While making a routine inspection, and an inspector found that some 17,000 winter jackets, a, a little section that, was, that wasn't visible except for an expert's eye, a defect. You see, the stitches were sewn in incorrectly. 
I mean, you had to look under a magnifying glass to locate that flaw, but the inspector caught it and the company had a dilemma on their hands. 17,000 winter jackets costing average price of $700. Now, these were very, very expensive jackets. But what were they going to do? Sell it and look the other way or, I mean, it's almost $12 million. But after much consideration, the company, instead of putting the defective jackets on the market, all 17,000 jackets were headed to the trash bin. <laughs> now, some of us who are like me, and when we hear stories like this, oh, come on, you know what? You know what? Couldn't you just donate it to a charity or just give them to me because I know exactly how to do, what to do with them. But instead, the company trashed it because they nunchied or they became aware of what the customers would feel. They knew that if this unethical act ever became public, they realized that they would lose their loyalty and they chose rather to lose millions and millions of dollars rather than to lose the trust of their loyal customers. So this word nunchi, so they nunchi their customers. Or it's like a politician is supposed to look after Nunchi, their constituents. You know, um, there are times in our lives that if we knew that all of our secret thoughts, words, and actions will display it publicly so that everyone could see and watch them and evaluate them, you know, I, I would think that it would make a profound difference in the way that we live. I mean, we have an instinctive concern about what others think of us and how they'll judge by the things that we do, just like this company. And yet, we have this much concern over what other men and women think of us and our actions. How much more should we concern about God's evaluation of our own thoughts, our own words? actions, attitudes, and motives. You see, each of us will give an account of our lives to God, and God is fully aware of everything we think, desire, speak, and do. And the fear of the Lord is an awareness of these truths. So it can also be defined as a continual awareness Nunchi, that you are in the presence of the holy, just, and an almighty God. And that every motive, thoughts, and words, and action is open before and will be judged by him. But, you know, quite often, this word, this phrase, fear of the Lord, is kind of dumbed down, watered down to a kind of healthy respect or an awe. But, you know, however, did you know that Paul says to the Philippian church to walk, work out of our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works among us. You know, to fear God is to know God in his holiness, 
that leads us to a certain trembling, which leads us to a certain course of actions. And, you know, it's very, very eye-opening that those who are God-fearing are the ones who take care of the poor, oppressed, dejected people of God. And that's what exactly the book of Nehemiah chapter 5 is all about. That, that God-fearing people are the ones who really, really take care of the poor, oppressed, and dejected. And Nehemiah nunchied or became aware of God's intention. You see, as Nehemiah was walking with God daily, he was reading what God was thinking and feeling and wanting him to do in his life. And so as he walked side by side every day, Nehemiah nunchied or became aware of God's intention. And you know, um, the chapter closes with Nehemiah kind of bragging about himself or he, he, he of how he never took of the governor's provisions for 12 years while serving under the king as the governor. And it is so surprising. And the reason why he did this, he explains this in verse 19. Take a look. Remember me, my God, for good. According to all that I have done, I have done it for my people, your people. What I have done was in accordance to the people of God. You see, Nehemiah became aware that fearing God or the wisdom from God was to nunchi God and to see and to feel and to figure out for his desire for his people. You know, um, this past Tuesday, the mission team had a great time in prayer and listening to our very own missionary from Japan, Todd Fung. And let me share with you uh, what he shared. And, and I want to share this with you because it's, it's a God's moment. It, it's God's sighting. Now, the missionary, Todd, told us that now in Japan, the majority of the people consider Christianity as the best religions because... And during the past couple of years, during the Sendai tsunami, the great Tohoku earthquake, or the Fukushima nuclear disasters, many religious agencies came into Japan for relief, but the ones who stayed till the end. Now, it, it's all, you know, it, it's now everybody, everything is okay. Now, now that everybody, all these agencies has left Japan, while most of the relief agencies came in, and now that they are gone, the reason that the Japanese considers Christianity as the best religion in Japan is because the ones who are still there are the Christians. You know, when I heard that, my, my heart began to kind of shake, and I said, Lord, thank you so very much, because... You know, do you remember last week I said the one number one complaint about, you know, people when I evangelize is that, you know, what you Christians are hypocrites. And yet I hear something like this, that the number one religion in Japan is the Christianity because we're the only ones who are still at the side by side to the Japanese people. You know, um, when we stand before God. 
at the final judgment day in heaven. You know that God is not going to ask us if we voted for Republican or Democrat. But I think, but I have a feeling that God would probably ask, what did we do to protect and stand up for the weak and the voiceless? And I, I want you to, CLC, I want you to look around because there are so many groups of these people that are weak and voiceless. Like, like the widows, the orphans, the poor, the homeless, abused, sex traffic, refugees. And what about those who have been racially oppressed? And if we are called the people of God, then don't we have to nunchi or to read what God wants from us? You see, faith takes risks. But faithful actions require us to pour our, our research, resources for those who are. Now, you fill in the blank. Faith takes risks. But faithful actions requires us to pour out our resources for those who are as Yununchi after God. People of CLC, our words and our works are evidence that our professions of faith in Lord Jesus Christ is true. I want to repeat this again. Our words and our works are evidence that our profession of faith in the Lord is true. And it's amazing that Nehemiah could have just ignored the cries of these people. I'm busy. Come back. And yet, because he was God-fearing man, he didn't ignore it. But rather, he nunchied or became aware of what our Father wanted him to do. And that's exactly what he did. And this week, as Pastor Caitlin challenged us, I want you to look around. I want you to look around and, and see if there are people that you could reach out so that our words and our works are evidence that our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is real. So I want to challenge you. I want to, I want, I want to really, really kind of make myself known, because you know what I am, God-fearing man or woman, or that we are all God-fearing church. Um, you know, in the light of the midst of this pandemic, COVID, you know, I just realized there are so many people who are hurting in need, and especially like the racial justices that, that's going on right now. And I just really want to plead out to you that if we are a God-fearing church, and, and if we really, really nunchi what God is telling us, shouldn't we go and exercise our faith? And once again, my, one of my favorite passages in James is that faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the people that you have put in our lives, those people you have placed in our path to show us what grace and love looks like, like today, Nehemiah. 
Lord, thank you for working in the real world where our real needs are. And thank you, Lord, for those people in our past who walked into our lives when we needed them the most. Thank you for those individuals who showed up and no one else would take a chance, who showed up at just the right moments. And we have one of those moments all of us have. And thank you, Lord, for those who risked their lives to show us what Christian love really, really looks like. And so, God, it is not out of guilt or shame, but out of a deep, profound sense of gratitude and fear of you that we open our hands, our hearts, and our lives, and even our finances to you this morning. Father God, we thank you that you have and that you will put people on our path whom we can love. That you give us the opportunity to risk being there for others the way that you were there for us. That you reveal who are to us when we love one another. That in your infinite wisdom, you created a world where we can grow closer to you and to know you more by loving one another. Father God, I just want to say thank you for this timely message today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Now, back to you, Caitlin.